Well, it's easier to be a parent this morning. It's easier to be a dad. And this is a big deal for us just to be able to get some peace and, 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 and have a chance for, for, for a reset. And, and the character of the country matters. And, 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 and being a good man matters. For a whole lot of people, it's a good day. Joe Biden has officially defeated Donald Trump to win the US election. Test results from around the world suggest that a coronavirus vaccine is on the horizon. Over the past month, there have been more bright spots than usual in a difficult and painful year. This is very good news because it's the third goal in the back of the net now. It's the third vaccine with a positive readout. And it really does make it highly likely that in the months that follow, we're going to have in COVID a vaccine preventable disease, which is terrific news. At the same time, with the number of coronavirus deaths at their highest since May, many parts of the country still subject to severe restrictions and unemployment skyrocketing, a lot of us are hesitant to declare that the worst days are behind us. We are in a very serious situation. So whilst the lockdown has certainly started to help, it hasn't gone a long way to helping. It has just slowed things down a bit. And I think the gravity of our situation cannot be overstated from a medical point of view. We're still running at a lot every single month. Who knows? Who will survive the third lockdown? Thousands of families and children will wake up on Christmas Day with no presents, in a cold house, no winter clothing. So many kids won't even have a Christmas meal. So, how has this year affected our mental health? How can progressives stay well enough to fight for change? And have we forgotten how to feel hopeful? In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're figuring out how to find hope during and after the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm very happy to be joined by returning friend of the pod, researcher and author Christine Berry. Hi, Christine. Hi, Aisha. And I'm also excited to be joined for the first time by the fantastic Fazana Khan, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Healing Justice London. Hi, Fazana. Hi. Thanks so much, both of you, for being with us. So let's start by talking about how we've been doing this year. So obviously 2020 has been incredibly difficult uh, for all of us and it's hit people's mental health hard. So starting off with you, Christine, could you talk a little bit about how you think the pandemic and its economic effects have impacted our mental well-being? Um, Sure, yeah. I mean, I guess we've all had our own experience of this, right? And I think the thing that always really gets me about the situation at the moment is just the kind of sheer variety of different mental health crises that are going on for different people. You know, whether it's people that have been bereaved and haven't been able to grieve with their families, people that are, you know, going out working on the front line that are anxious about catching the virus or about passing on the virus, people that are working from home that are struggling with loneliness and with depression, you know, people that have been caring for children at home that are struggling with burnout, uh, people with relatives in care homes that they can't go and see. It's it's just kind of mind-boggling once you start to kind of think about the sheer variety of different kinds of pain and suffering that people are dealing with. And I think one of the things that's made it particularly hard, certainly that I found hard this year, and that's been particularly cruel, is that not only are we all dealing with a lot more stuff than normal, the nature of lockdown has meant that we can't do a lot of the things we would normally do to deal with our stuff, you know, whether it's different forms of exercise that we've not been able to do when, you know, gyms and swimming pools have been closed or just seeing our friends, seeing our family. And I think particularly for people on the left, this has been quite a hard year for a lot of people on the left, not being able to gather in groups with like-minded people and kind of process how we're feeling, I think has been really, really tough for a lot of people. Mm. Fazana, so as I mentioned in the intro, you co-founded Healing Justice London, which is an organization which reimagines what well-being could look like for marginalized communities, among many other things. Could you talk a little bit about how you think this year has impacted people's well-being, perhaps in particular some of the people that you work with? Yeah, I would have to kind of build off what Christine has touched on. There's like many forms um, and manifestations of loss of grief, of bereavement that we're all undergoing in different ways. But this idea that it's new is always something that I find really difficult to sit with. You know, many folks who we support in healing justice and we work with and build with 
are already experiencing those things. And, you know, from chronic sickness to being isolated, to being bed bound, to being fragile to the state, to experiencing multiple forms of precarity. And what I also see so often is even these ideas of like the coping mechanisms that particularly marginalized and really frontline communities use are the ones that are criminalized. And those are the ones that are kind of approached with a you know punitive sense with the state, you know, um, using particular substances or things that are outside of the general imagination. And then the kind of more palatable well-being kind of forms of coping and processing, which we do see in the left, um, are the things that we're now realizing are essential. And of course, they are essential, but I'm constantly holding that class analysis that I feel is often absent. And actually, when we think about how do we move towards wellness, especially wellness for bodies that aren't even in our imaginaries? You know, we don't think of those bodies. You know, I know, including myself, many folks who live with chronic sickness and exist outside of the state. So I'm really sitting with what is the reimagining and we have to do at scale on an infrastructure level with those bodies in mind and really reframing our narratives from the sense that we're vulnerable because of our marginalization. Like it's like, you know, because you're disabled, you're vulnerable as opposed to the systemic structures that consistently make us vulnerable. And if we're thinking about design and infrastructure that supported us not being made vulnerable, I think that's a really key area that's being spotlighted right now um, for all of us. Mm, I find that really interesting, this idea of a spectrum from your palatable or perhaps even commodified well-being constructions to survival at the other end and what are the kind of associated activities on that spectrum and who are they associated with and what are the implications of that. I think that's really interesting, as well as obviously the points around kind of the social model of disability that you talked about. I was wondering, um, a follow-up there, Fasana. One of the things that I've found personally with a lot of my friends with various disabilities, feeling that their experiences of essentially having to kind of shield for pretty much the entire year are really invisibilized in the discourse around the impacts of the pandemic. Um, and I'm just wondering if you have found that also in your work and if there are other kind of examples that you could speak to of perhaps where we should be paying more attention to people's experiences this year that we're not right now. Absolutely. And I think disability justice groups have done fantastic voice as much as they can to vocalise in the UK. Um, right at the beginning of COVID, Sisters of Freedom and other collaborating and connected disability justice groups and organisations put out a fantastic report, which I recommend folks reading on, called The Impact of COVID-19 on Disabled Women. And it really outlined, you know, from an intersectional perspective, from a gender perspective, a class and a race perspective, the different ways in which the disabled community has been ignored and isolated and not just in COVID, but just chronically as part of our societal makeup and what we normalize um, and how so many people are at points relieved that things are online now and that actually there is a bit more in public consciousness conversations around access and what it means to like arrange your life, not just in terms of someone living with chronic sickness and disability, but also the ecosystems around that. If you have it like carers, like, you know, frontline workers who are part of your makeup and your life and your survival hinges on that. Similarly, the welfare system in particular, we have a project we've been building with Dr. China Mills, and it's been built off a lot of her work around suicidality and also a lot of disability justice campaigners who've been working around suicidality and cuts and states and sanctioned deaths because of the ways in which benefits and um, the loss of benefits have impacted communities that live with chronic sickness and disability. And so I think that, that a lot of what COVID-19 is doing is consistently confronting the absence. And this is why, you know, when we were talking or, you know, referring that whether absence is presence, we see that across lots of different marginalized groups. And I think Often when I talk about public health or what is the kind of vision we need, there's two central frameworks that we could look to. One is a disability justice approach, which really looks at the disposability, the value and the desirability of bodies and which bodies and how that connects to systems and infrastructures. But also on the other side, an abolition framework, which on one level is looking at dismantling punitive systems and, and carceral systems, not just the police, but also mental and physical health um, institutions but on the other side is looking at the presence of 
thriving and generative ecosystems and infrastructure. So there's a lot that we could be looking towards um, and really, you know, transformative ways in which we could be building. And the genius often lies with those who live on the margins and are surviving the margins and also creating in the margins, which is disabled and chronically sick and other marginalized groups, because you're constantly having to do that to live. That was that was incredibly useful. Thank you, Fasana. So I promised both that we're going to get to hope uh, in a moment, um, as I said we would. But just to come back to you, Christine. So you've written about a narrative amongst progressives that this crisis is an opportunity that we can't afford to miss. Could you talk a bit more about that idea and how it impacts on our mental health? Yeah, so I mean, I, I feel like I saw a lot of this in the early days of the crisis, especially when it first hit. There was a certain segment of the left, I think, that got quite carried away with this kind of idea that, you know, this was another crisis like the 2008 financial crisis. And after that crisis, we'd spent a lot of time kind of picking over why we hadn't seized the opportunity of this kind of breakdown of the status quo to build something better and how we hadn't been ready with an alternative and we hadn't had the power to build the movements that could do that and blah, blah, blah. And so I think when the pandemic hit, there was quite a, I don't know how widespread it was or if it was just in in my sort of lefty bubble, but there was this idea of like, hit the big red panic button. This is another crisis and we can't afford to screw it up like we did in 2008. And I actually feel like in many ways, that wasn't particularly helpful for a lot of people. I think it generated a sort of sense of extreme pressure that led to a lot of burnout. And maybe actually also a, a sort of almost overinflated sense of our own agency at a time when the left, as we probably now realise in the UK, actually maybe has less agency um, than it's been used to having over the last few years, that I think maybe wasn't actually that helpful in in helping people even to sort of think clearly and strategically about what was the most useful thing to do. And I think also has led to a lot of burnout where maybe people didn't quite acknowledge the fact that they were also living through a pandemic and needed to take care of themselves. And I think, you know, even then, my sort of feeling was actually, I don't think this is a kind of short window of opportunity, you know, that is going to close really quickly that we need to take advantage of now, now, now. This is going to be a very long drawn out crisis and I think that is kind of what's proving to be the case the recession and the pandemic are not things that are going to be over anytime soon and so if there is some kind of positive change that comes out of it I think it's going to come in a kind of much slower more organic way maybe not the sort of big bang that people thought we were experiencing back in March. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, a lot of that resonated with me. I mean, my own experience anecdotally at, at Neon was definitely exactly as you say, that uh, the pandemic hits, oh my goodness, go, 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 like the movements need us, we've got to be, you know, designing this webinar series, and we've got to be putting out reports, and we've got to be like there for everything everyone needs. And I think as a group of humans, we exactly went into that mode that you're describing of kind of emergency and didn't take care of ourselves or really create space for us to be humans with needs. And then it did lead to a quite significant burnout, which is why as an organization, we decided to take a a week, you know, to pause and reflect over summer and, and just kind of recover a bit and have since then really attempted to reprioritize that sense of collective care, but it was a lesson that was kind of hard learned in that sense. So moving on a little bit to um, some of the yeah more hopeful elements, looking back at this year, we've seen an explosion in the number of mutual aid groups across the country. So coming to you first, Fazana, is this something that you think that we should feel optimistic about? Um, and what are some of the knock-on effects of so many people being involved in mutual aid? I mean, I think when people participate in solidarity economies and participate in ways that they get to exercise agency, that's always a, a reassuring thing that we feel like we're agents of change and community. I think those are things that we need if we really want to live in democratic or you know transformed societies where we feel responsible for ourselves and one another, um, then absolutely. I think you always have to be mindful that it doesn't absolve the responsibilities of the state, but also that it doesn't invisibilize the state actors and other institutions. I think 
mutual aid is you absolutely see it in mental health networks and in spaces around suicidality, like the need to create these communities and ecologies that before you're institutionalized or policed um, and when you're experiencing emotional distress, that there is an ecosystem that can hold you and support you, particularly when you're vulnerable. And, you know, you see that similarly in survivor spaces and mutual aid has so often provided this culture of support and community care, which is completely necessary if we want to move out of, you know, the capitalist structures that we live in right now. But I also think that there's a lot of work to be done and and not to simplify the level of transformation work that we need to all be participating on a personal level, as well as a um, collective level, what it means to participate, who has the privilege, you know, as part of um, a small group trying to work around building liberation tools for those who are doing mutual aid, because in a lot of spaces, like, for example, where I live in East London, which is heavily gentrified, you know, there were concerns around white neighbors policing people of color, or in other spaces, raising concerns that were racialized or class-based. So, and also who was able to access it and similarly, like access to digital devices and tools who has internet, you know, we have digital poverty in our in this country is just not something that we often think about um, and people who have access to phones. So I'm, I'm definitely super aware of the ways that power dynamics reproduce in mutual aid spaces and how much for any ways that we are trying to organize collectively, that intersectionality, the anti-oppression, the anti-racism work has to be so present and that for us to really embody these liberated worlds and futures that we're calling in and and we should be calling in we have to really do that work on ourselves and do it as our life's practice as liberation practice and so I'm, i think yes to your question but there's a profound amount of work which we're capable of so i don't think that we're not capable of it it's just that we need to be invested in it and it we need to be invested in it beyond the political agenda or this is my front line or this is my particular issue or this is anti-racism or this is like you know a trans justice issue only it needs to be part of us becoming as grace lee bog says more human humans and really really becoming about our life's work you know things that tony ben and others have said when it comes to the political practice of who we're becoming Mm. Christine, I just want to bring you in in particular on that point around how can we avoid mutual aid groups kind of being called upon to plug gaps that the state should be filling, obviously, you know, in addition to what Fazana was laying out there. Yeah, that really resonated with me. I mean, everything that Fazana said I thought was amazing and so inspiring. And I think she's absolutely right. Like, this is the work, right? So building these kind of networks of practical solidarity, A, in a way, that is genuinely kind of liberatory and doesn't reproduce oppressions and B, in a way that is not just about plugging gaps in what the state is providing, what the market is providing, but that is actually about building the root system of a new politics that ultimately can win state power as well. And I think there are some really interesting lessons from countries like Greece in that, you know, and other countries like Greece and and Portugal and Spain after the financial crisis, where there has been a kind of breakdown in the social fabric. And you've seen this massive proliferation of the solidarity economy and of mutual aid. But I think in those countries, it's been for the people involved in it and organizing it, they were always very clear that this wasn't an alternative to big politics and to state power and to fixing the broken system, but that it was part of that political project and that, you know, the solidarity economy in Greece became quite connected with Syriza and with the movement around Syriza. Um, and obviously that didn't end so well. So, you know, there's lessons both positive and negative, I think, to be learned from that. But I really think this is the work and it is one of the things that makes me a bit hopeful because I think after the 2019 election, we all kind of acknowledged and realized maybe that the left just didn't have those deep roots and kind of practical solidarity making a real difference to people's lives on a day-to-day basis that it needed to have in a lot of communities in a lot of parts of the country and the sort of hope I suppose for me and the potential of the mutual aid movement or moment that's happened um, as a result of the pandemic is that maybe there's an opportunity to build that root system of a new politics. Mm, yeah, I mean, I agree with all that. And I definitely kind of like to 
re-emphasize that point around mutual aid being something which has existed long before this moment and in large part has been practiced by people with marginalized identities. Um, and we actually had a fantastic webinar at Neon run by an academic called Sayo Graydon, which was all about the history of mutual aid and really digging into that, which I think is now available on our website if people want to hear more about that because it's really important. But for now, I want to hear a bit more about your work, Fazana, with Healing Justice. So could you tell us a little bit about Healing Justice London and what it means for you to be kind of creating these healing spaces for marginalised communities and why that's so important? Yeah, sure. Um, I wanted to say with marginalised communities, because I mean, everyone that we work with and in our teams are um, lived experience of different intersections, not just race, it might be race and survivorhood, it may be race and disability or sickness, including our white allies who also have lived experience. And so, mm. you know, what we're building at Healing Justice is a community-led approach to working on the intersections of public health in its most radical and liberatory sense, but also healing that is not centered on Eurocentric and Western models, but allows us to connect, revive, and remember our spiritual, indigenous, and cultural roots and traditions as part of decolonial and anti-colonial praxis. And in that, our model works across three areas. It works on building internal capacity. So that's the language, the tools, the skills, the political capaciousness, which Angela Davis talks about if we're going to have sustainable movements and sustainable practice within our own communities. What does health, wellness look like? And at the moment, based on the needs of our communities, a lot of that has been around reproductive justice, um, gendered harm and violence, and then also a particular program around um, men of colour and healing. So looking at toxic masculinity, reproduction of, of harm amongst the COVID response too. And that's just some of the types of programs that we work on, but really trying to build the analysis and the interventions and restore agency towards ourselves in that work. Um, as the second area is external capacity to not absolve the state and the other major players, but to look at how they are dismantling themselves or redistributing their resources. And so we work with public health, we work with major institutions to really think about the systemic changes that need to be made. And one particular project that we've been working on for a year and a half in homage to Audrey Lord is Litany for Survival, which is around loss and bereavement, which is so pertinent now, but we were researching loss and bereavement amongst communities of colour because you know, communities of colour experience loss and bereavement in isolated and interconnected ways. But in particular, a lot of the ways in which bereavement is punished and criminalised. So, you know, one study in particular showed up to 90% of young adult men um, had experienced up to six bereavements who were in the prison population and similar kinds of statistics within homelessness and substance um addiction. So when we're not looking at bereavement and grief and the impacts of it and the cumulative trauma and the slow violence around it and how that contributes to the chronic unsustainability in our lives, our ecosystems and more structurally, then we, we aren't able to ever really um, move towards the futures that we are looking towards and to be able to do that led by us because we're always under-resourced, under-equipped and constantly burning out and breaking down. And then the last area that we work at is sustaining capacity. So this is really supporting the leadership, ecological leadership in our communities, you know, really putting support behind those who are visionaries, who are artists, who are our thinkers, and creating space and supporting their spaciousness to help us dream and think and feel resourced around that and equally supporting movements around things from conflict transformation to, you know, healing circles to looking at different ways in which we can build and innovate as well, because we have to keep remembering that what we're trying to do in the context of what has been the norm is always innovation. It's always creating and co-creating and reconfiguring our realities. And so there's nothing in existence that uh, will remain the same. And so we really have to move into the most radical version of our imagination and ways of being, and that's not set out for us anywhere. And so creating that spaciousness for us to risk, be vulnerable, 
I don't even want to say make mistakes because it's growth. And if we were white folks, it would be trial and error. Um, we really look at that. Um, and those are kind of the key three areas that we work on as part of our strategy. And I guess what's important to iterate is that our teams also use particular approaches and strategies in terms of our intervention from centering disability justice to being trauma-informed to being collaborative and co-producing to centering lived experience to always having a cultural strategy no matter what the work is whether it's research um, whether it's frontline organizing that we center strengthening the muscle of public imagination in our work. I mean, it certainly sounds like the rest of the left uh, could borrow a few uh, really useful things from your amazing work. Just picking up that piece that you mentioned there around leadership. So obviously Healing Justice London, as you have laid out, does some really important work building capacity for people in those leadership positions. And Christine, you've also mentioned the work of Rebecca Solnit and others in your writing who says that being hopeful is a discipline and a commitment to the future. So there's kind of lots of overlaps between what's being said here. And a question I had for both of you, um, which is quite a big one, I guess, is why is hope so important in times like this? And what can people who are fighting for change, regardless of the situation they find themselves in, what can they do to stay well enough to keep doing the work? So maybe I'll come to you, Christine, first on that question of why you think hope is important and then back to you, Fazana. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned Rebecca Solnit and I think I found her work really useful this year in thinking about what hope is and what it means and therefore why it's useful. So um, a book of hers that I read this year called Hope in the Dark, which she actually wrote just after George W. Bush was elected in the US. And it really was fascinating reading it because it clearly at that time for the American left, it was a moment of complete gloom and despair where they felt like, you know, the world was over and things couldn't possibly get any worse. <laughs> we know different now, obviously. Um, but uh, there was a lot in it that really resonated for me with where I think a lot of people in the UK left are at now. But one of the things that she sort of helped me to think about is the difference between hope and optimism. So I think a lot of people on the UK left are quite pessimistic about politics at the moment. And when you start to talk about hope, they sort of think that it means that you're in denial or that you're being kind of naively, you know, delusional or optimistic about how things might turn out. Whereas Solnit, she says it's not really about that. She has a great phrase, which I loved, where she says, hope locates itself in the premise that we don't know what will happen and that in the space of that uncertainty is room to act. So, you know, it's not really about optimism or pessimism. It's about a kind of openness to the sort of messiness I guess of the world and of the way that change happens and a recognition that it's not a sort of binary you win or you lose that we can identify things that we have control over where we can try and make positive change and maintain the sort of hope and the belief that that may be part of a movement that can build towards bigger positive change you know the kind of systemic change that we really need and I think that's so important firstly just for our sanity and for sustaining ourselves because the opposite of hope in that sense is depression and I'm not going to pretend that I haven't had as I'm sure a lot of us have had this year moments of just complete depression where all I've wanted to do is just curl up in a ball and for everything to go away um, and I think we all know if we've been there that that doesn't lead you anywhere useful and politically I don't think it leads you anywhere useful either and I found I was spending a lot of time scrolling on Twitter through a sort of soup of angry depressed people getting increasingly angry and depressed and lashing out increasingly wildly at everybody around them and I just think it doesn't help us it doesn't help other people it certainly doesn't help the world and that's why I think it's really important for us to find things that allow us to hold on to a sense of hope. Mm, yeah hope in the dark was was also a really kind of guiding book for me I think a few years ago when I was as you say kind of struggling with the enormity of everything. It definitely felt like a bit of a beacon. And also Active Hope by Joanna Macy was another one that I kind of found really, really useful in that sense of hope is not something we have, it's something that we do. But yeah, to come to you, Fazana, on that question of kind of why hope is important and what people can do to yeah stay well enough to keep doing the work. Thank you, Christine. I, I really like appreciated your thoughts around it. And I, I really, um, you know, the point of hope being a discipline, Mariam Kaba. Like really, it's something that I sit with a lot. I think there's like two things 
that I kind of always sit with. I can't remember who said this like phrase when COVID was happening. Someone on Twitter had said this tweet, which is like a lot of people are now dealing with the myth of uncertainty. That's what they're being confronted with. And I think this is what Christine was touching on. And there's a lot of us who've already continuously had to survive and make uncertainty part of our lives. And even if we live the most liberated world, we'd still experience loss and heartbreak. And, you know, without the oppression, there'd still be forms of things that we have to navigate and negotiate. And I'm not trying to romanticize or silver line any of the ways that we suffer and experience harm or violence. What I'm saying is that we would still have to practice hope at the very least because we experience bereavement. And, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons we also wanted to work with loss, because for some of us who've experienced loss, um, it's also been deeply transformative forms of bereavement, which have shown us there's nothing left to lose. You know, there's nothing left to lose after you've experienced a profound loss and losing fear, which then allows us to like live with courage and to have a stake and to invest in. And I think that this is a time where we we absolutely do have to practice hope and it is a discipline and also hold what creates the capacity to have that discipline. I've been a youth and community worker for a long time and uncertainty feels really unsafe. People don't imagine a lot of the young people that I grew up with and, and who I've worked with don't see themselves in a the future. And the feeling in your body of uncertainty to embrace change is so difficult because uncertainty is fatal and has been for our community. So there's a profound amount of work, which is body work, which is trauma work around how we create the conditions for people to navigate and embrace the type of change that's actually happening right now. And I want to point to the US elections because I was very grumpy with the way that a lot of the UK left responded to the US elections. Everyone centered Kamala and Biden and completely, you know, a lot of people, you know, needed at that moment to put in their woke two cents and, you know, let us know that empire needs to be starved. And as if people can't hold nuance, as if there hasn't been thousands and thousands of grassroots organizers who've been organizing pre the election for years and years and years, not seeing it as a destination, but actually seeing it as as a strategic point to um, move towards other positions that allow us to move towards collective liberation and watching the absence of trust and the absence of complicating our politics and to be able to suspend the binaries to release like this moral purity of good or bad, this side or that side, is also the absence of hope in one another. And I think we are actually at a point where our politics needs to be complicated, that we do need to move in strategic ways, that we can both hold abolition and the incremental changes that enable us to move towards abolition. And that when we say we want to topple everything, yes, you can topple entire regimes and then have them reproduce because our societal and our behavioral and our inner transformation hasn't taken place. And so it just gets reproduced, all the harms in just a different iteration. And actually how change happens is deeply iterative. Um, and there's a negotiation and deep work and practice. So I really think a lot of what Christine had touched on that absolutely resonates in terms of this moment and us being able to activate that hope as life skills, not just because our politics is hinged on it, but because that makes us better partners, makes us better family members, makes us better friends. And it allows us to move from a place of trust, which then allows our politics to be generative. And it models that for one another. And it allows us to be spacious and playful and joyful, which is what we need to start embodying instead of the constant shutdown and drag and council culture, which is what we just see in the British left, which we're better than that. And we need to allow our politics to move in that direction now. Mm, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And I have lots of things to that I would like to say, but I can see Christine's hand is up. Do you want to come in, Christine? Um, yeah, if it's okay. It's just, um, of course, oh, yeah. I just absolutely loved everything that Farzana was saying. I think there's just so much deep wisdom in there and this is gonna make me sound like a dick but as a buddhist um the stuff about uncertainty 
really resonated with me because I think yeah, there's, it's too. a huge thing about how we learn to live with uncertainty and to live with change and the fact that things don't stay the same and we can't kind of get ground under our feet and get control over the world and make it predictable. And it's funny because on, on one level, I actually think that the UK mental health impacts of the pandemic may well be a lot worse than in many other places in the world because the government's response has been so shambolic that it's actually kind of added to that uncertainty when people are already struggling with it. Absolutely. But the more that time has gone on, and the longer the pandemic's gone on, the more that I've kind of realized that actually the way we're going to get through this is not by kind of bracing ourselves and hunkering down and waiting for the storm to pass and waiting for this moment in the future when everything's going to be normal again, whatever that means. But it's actually to find ways to sort of live with the uncertainty and to live with the fact that we don't know what's going to happen from day to day and find those kind of moments of, of beauty and solidarity and playfulness, whatever it is that helps us to kind of feel that we're okay. And the other thing that Fazana said that um, I really loved was this thing about losing our fear and how that allows us to kind of live with courage and the fact that actually hope demands courage. And this is something Rebecca Solnit talks about. And that there's a certain segment of the left, actually, often kind of quite privileged people on the left that are quite comfortable with this sort of default setting of despair and like belief that nothing can change that just allows you to kind of you know, tear everything down as not being good enough and knock everybody uh, <laughs> that's trying to do anything good as not being good enough, that actually that is less emotionally demanding. It asks less of you than hope and then kind of investing yourself in the possibility of change and risking being disappointed and recognizing those shades of gray and the fact that it's not a sort of binary, either we win or we lose, either we succeed or we fail and embracing that uncertainty and that sort of messy reality is such a profound thing I think and it's it's a life's work like Fazana was saying. Mm, yeah and just quickly on that point of uncertainty because that also really resonated with me I think to emphasize something again that Fazana said around how we might begin to embed more of an intersectional praxis is kind of understanding that uncertainty has different impacts based on your identity and your experiences. So speaking from my personal perspective, as a, a survivor of various traumas, of, of, of homelessness, of lots of things, and as a black woman, of course, it's a very different predicament that you're presented with when the world is uncertain, because we are taught from our own experiences that when things are uncertain, there is no guarantee that they will be okay. If anything, it's much more likely that they won't be. Whereas I think for lots of other people in this moment, they have these kind of experiences to fall back on of oh, the last time it was difficult, the last time it was uncertain, everything worked out okay and it will again. And so we have to be able to kind of bring this much more intersectional analysis, trauma-informed exactly as Fazana was saying, to the construction of hope and the construction of movements more generally, if we're ever kind of going to get to a place where we can build meaningful solidarity. I do want to take us on to this point, which you've already kind of teed up, Fazana, around how we react when good things actually do happen. So with the American election and the positive news about the development of the vaccine and things like that, we have seen a few bright spots. And I, I wanted to ask both of you, and, and you've touched on it already, Fazana, how you think as progressives, we deal with good news. Have we forgotten how to do that? Um, I think it was really, really revealing to me, the response in the UK. I organized on gendered Islamophobia, on, on health issues, lots of different things with folks in the US. And I've also trained with people in the US. And, the, you know, I, I think there's an issue that we have to address, which is that, you know, our politics doesn't necessarily translate. Our ways of organizing doesn't translate. White supremacy has a different face and a different manifestation. We're institutionalized in different ways. The brainchild of the empire. So absolutely not everything crosses over. And there is a, you know, often such a focus of US-centred movement and organising that I just want to acknowledge because I think often people can romanticise it. But in the context of the US election, there were some really key learnings that I was held up because what I saw happening on the macro level in response from a lot of kind of lefty activists and NGO folks was actually what happens on the micro level. Like, you know, the first centering Biden and Kamala and like completely disregarding how change actually happens and the level of like frontline work and that frontline work not being ballot or ticking, but actually like grassroots community building, trying to get one person to vote and turn a vote 
is a lot of relationship building. And so often that kind of community work, which is only now that the left in the UK are understanding that community work is meaningful activism. You know, about five years ago, you know, when I used to talk about community work, I remember people not seeing that as radical politics. You know, they might talk about political education, but actual community work being a form of activism wasn't taken seriously. And so again, we see this like erasure and it's the erasure of gendered labor, you know, the labor that is the emotional work, the spiritual work, the in the trenches work, you know, it's not the direct action, it's not the policy piece, it's not the academic writing, it's the invisibilized labor, which is so often gendered. Again, it was um also the demand of labor. So as soon as the win was acknowledged, um, not by Trump, but, you know, we could see that Biden had won. What next? And this is exactly the same experience for many of us who are frontline organizers, where not to be even afforded a moment to breathe or to celebrate and to have more demands and expectations and an entitlement. And that often comes from those who are spectators, who don't understand the scale and detail of work that's at play. You know, often we're trying to have an anti-capitalist politics, whilst at the same time demanding work on people who are already being brutalized in a lot of our activists and movement spaces because we haven't found anti-capitalists and more human ways of organizing that do center our trauma and do pace and are sustainable. So I think that that, that really showed itself the need to have rhetoric and opinion um, which is so often we see this on the like Twitterati and what it means when if you're not informed, like, can we just make space to say, I don't know, or to let people connect with their agency that they may have, you know, only in your eyes voted, but that vote was powerful and giving and supporting people to have permission around their own agency and acknowledging that is so, so important. Lots of other things around it, especially around global solidarities, you know, a lot of people often not wanting to think about the global north. And so the alternative to that is like, well, look at the global majority, the global south and solidarities, which are essential and crucial. But the level of front lines we have in the UK on a class level, on a destitutional level, a lot of the people who are talking about those global south solidarities aren't also looking to the level of, of harm and violence that communities of color and other marginalized communities also experience here and so completely just disregard organizing in the north global north that might happen in the u.s it might happen in the uk not as wins um, and so i think that there's a lot of advancing of our politics that i think it really was revealed through this moment and also those points around moral purity and you know using the oppressors framework that either all or nothing and all or nothing isn't how we transform all of us are problematic <laughs> and none of us came out the womb with a placard and there is no pure clean space because we live and are products of these systems and we're also human and we have to make space for that too so I think there's a lot that showed up that we can learn from from what the US election and our response to it was. Mm, absolutely. Christine, I want to come to you on that. And, you know, in particular, there's obviously been a lot of talk amongst progressives in the US about, you know, how the election isn't the end. It's actually just the beginning of a push to influence Biden. And exactly as Fazana was saying, you know, we can't stop. This is actually just the next step and things like that. And so I guess I wanted to invite your thoughts on what Fazana said, but also on the flip side, a question of whether there's kind of a danger that we get complacent when good things come along. Um, although something tells me there isn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, yeah, no, mainly I'm just loving listening and learning from Fazana, because I think, again, there's a huge amount of wisdom in there. And I keep banging on about Rebecca Solnit, but again, this is something that she talks about, about this sort of thing. And I don't know if it is a particularly US and UK left thing, but it's a cultural thing of being really bad at recognizing and celebrating progress and success. And, and she kind of argues that that partly comes from a certain version of a Marxist reading of history, where that is how you think about change that it's sort of somewhere in the future there's the kind of utopia once you know history has progressed to its <laughs> conclusion uh, where we're going to overthrow capitalism and build utopia and short of that we almost feel like nothing is good enough there is something there's a kind of truth there that we are really bad at recognizing success and you know even this year there have been things that have been drawn to my attention that you can count as wins for the environmental movement over the last 10 years 
in the UK, you know, protests that I was on a decade ago against Heathrow expansion or against coal-fired power stations, where at the time we might have felt we were making no progress, but actually you kind of look back now and realise that actually a lot of those movements were quite successful and have made a real difference to the trajectory of how things have gone in the UK. And I think we are not very good at recognising that because it's never good enough and it always falls short of the ideal we've got in our head of what change looks like. And I do think there is a thing about maybe changing some of those models we have in our heads of what change looks like and what it will look like and how we'll know it when we see it. You know, On the other hand, I think your point about complacency, I guess what slightly concerns me is the sort of centrist kind of response to things like Biden being elected or the vaccine news, you know, like Hadley Freeman, I think from uh, The Guardian tweeted something where she was basically like, oh, phew, you know, things can go back to normal now. Can we just kind of wind the clock back to 2015 and pretend that none of this ever happened? And I think there's a sort of element of that amongst certain people that makes me a bit nervous, I guess, that they don't seem to realize that actually the vast majority of people don't want to go back to normal, that normal was kind of the problem and is the reason that a lot of these things happened in the first place. And, you know, just because Trump has just lost the election rather than just won it doesn't suddenly mean that everything is fine. And so I think the job in that context is to be kind of a bit restless um, and to kind of continue to insist on the need for a sort of bolder vision of, of a different future. And to continue to make the point that things were not fine before Trump was elected. And actually a large part of the reason that he was elected was because things were not fine. But at the same time, I do totally agree with Pazana's point that there needs to be space made, especially for people who have kind of put their everything into achieving something to kind of take a pause and, and recognize that, yes, that is a good thing. And it's you can recognize that it's a good thing while still understanding that it's not enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are going to have to wrap up soon, even though I could speak to you both all evening on this. But I think in particular, I think we need to be better as humans at doing that difficult psychological work of holding both, right? Of holding the fact that we do need to be better at celebrating and allowing ourselves to sit in in the victories and the hard work that we've done and celebrating each other in those moments, those rare moments of victory and transformation, as well as being able to kind of hold the nuance around the fact that it isn't enough. It's never enough, you know, that we're always exactly as you said, Fazana, taking one step towards something rather than having reached the destination. But holding both of those things, I think, can be really, really tough. Uh, and just on that point that you were making, Christine, around drawing more on what we have achieved in the past or like some of the things we have won. That was one of the pieces from Hope in the Dark that really stuck out at me. And one of the quotes from that that I really like is when Rebecca Solnit says, we have a we have a seldom told, seldom remembered history of victories that can give us confidence that yes, we can change the world because we have many times before. And personally for me, that's what a lot of my work is rooted in, that kind of understanding that it's possible and we have to remember that we've done it before. Just to wrap us up um, appropriately for an episode about hope. You know, uh, I thought it'd be nice to end on a hopeful note. So amidst all of the kind of difficulty that we've been discussing and laying out, I wanted to ask each of you in turn to tell me what, if anything, makes you feel hopeful heading into 2021, if you could just pick one thing. I mean, I have never stopped being hopeful because I don't have a choice. Um, So I really resonated with what you said, Aisha. And I think our communities are delicious you know, they're beautiful Mm -hmm. and our own capacity to overcome and survive and to create and innovate and to move and travel with one another is so profound. And I, I've never not seen that in my communities, the communities I'm in solidarity with. And I, I'm, I feel even in 2020, it's not the worst year of my life. And I wouldn't call it that. I know that collectively there's been so much going on because I feel I've still been able to tune into and I, and that's a privilege. And I recognize that to so much joy and resilience and cheekiness and banter and music and, you know, people creating. And so I'm always yeah, my gaze is on our ability to create and imagine and dream and embody joy, which we do and we've done. I feel like I've been saying delicious a lot today because I just feel like what we have when we are navigating these things is these like delicious and joyful qualities. And even if they're windows, 
they can resource us in ways that are so profound. So I don't know. I just want to put the word delicious out there. Mm, I'm taking it. I'm taking it as my word of the day or my word of the year. Um, thank you for that. And Christine, same question. What's making you feel hopeful? Oh, Gosh, this is a hard one for me because for all my wanging on about hope, maybe the reason I've spent so much time thinking about hope is that I do sometimes struggle to be hopeful. I'm, a lot of people mm. who know me will know that I'm not the, I'm not a naturally optimistic person. Um, having said that, hope is not the same as optimism. I think the thing probably that makes me most hopeful, apart from the existence of amazing women like both of you, is the sort of sense that beneath everything that's happening in the pandemic, there's a kind of dawning realization of our connectedness you know whether it is people starting to get involved in mutual aid that might not have done before or whether it's you know the understanding that from a public health point of view from an economic point of view like none of us are safe until all of us are safe and that kind of spirit of solidarity and I think not to kind of fetishize the mutual aid thing or to imply that it was in some way new or that it wasn't happening before but I think for a lot of people it kind of expose the lie of what neoliberalism tells us about who we are right that we're basically all selfish like atomized individuals that are like rationally pursuing our own ends and I think what we learned in the first lockdown and people who might have been inclined to believe that learned that actually that's not what most people are like most people want to help their neighbors they want to help their communities and that instinct when we're going through something really scary is to reach out um, and to help people that maybe we had never met before and have no particular reason to care about and yeah, I think it's not a given that we can build on that kind of spirit in 2020. And I think there's a lot of dangers of the sort of politics of divide and rule, <laughs> like trying to kind of derail that spirit. And you're seeing that already. But I think if we can hold on to that as we go into 2021, that's the thing that kind of makes me hopeful that maybe this could be an opportunity for something better. Mm. Well, this conversation has certainly made me hopeful. Um, sadly, that is all we've got time for this week. Um, lovely listener, I hope you're feeling maybe a little bit of what I am right now after having the fantastic Fazana uh, and Christine with us. But yes, that's all we've got time for this episode and also this series. But we'll be back in the new year with more exciting episodes. So to come to each of you in turn, Christine Berry, thanks so much for joining me for this rich conversation. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Oh, gosh. Um, they can go to my website, I guess, which is christineberry.net. They can find me on Twitter, my ridiculous Twitter handle, which is Earthling, which is O-E-U-F-L-I-N-G. Or you can sometimes find me writing in places like The Guardian and Open Democracy. Fantastic. And Fazana Khan, thanks to you so much uh, as well for joining us. If people want to find out more about your work, same question, where should they go? Similarly, I've got a uh, work in progress website um, fazanakhan.net I'm on Twitter Khan K Faza and then I have a work Instagram called rose.water.lemonade which was generated to seek hope um, rose water for the skin the outer and Beyonce's lemonade for the soul for the inner so yeah put <laughs> that in there fantastic I'll definitely be seeding that out <laughs> So that's it for today's weekly economics podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'm sure you have. Please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. If you've been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can also contact the Samaritans free at 116 123 or visit samaritans.org. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. <laughs>